Can you hear me? Is it on? Okay. Uh, I'll be reading from Exodus 1.15 through 2.9 this morning. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could not when she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubs, daubed it with vitamin and pitch. <laughs> she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord. Please take your seats. Good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, that is an amazing story to see God provide the way he did. So um, this morning, as you saw, we meet Moses. We witness his birth. And um, what you'll sense from just hearing that scripture reading is that um, Moses is the central character of this book. The way he enters the scene is weighty. There's a lot of gravity. It's a grotesque and bloody means with the genocide, the attempted genocide of all the Hebrew boys. So if we miss the gravity this morning, we miss the point, and we also miss the hope that the text is trying to show us. So I want to pray that God would allow us both to feel his deliverance as we think about it and as we listen, to to feel what it would have felt like to be one of the Hebrew midwives or to be one of those mothers or to be one of the the many Egyptians or the many Israelites that were a part of it, either complicitly or silently. Um, It is heavy and um, unlike the name of Moses, which means drawn out, I will try to keep my sermon not too drawn out, but there is a lot to cover here. So join me in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you are God who, in the midst of darkness, has shown a light, that you're a God in the midst of chaos, um, in the midst of a a leader in Egypt that had um, such an antagonistic approach to your good plan, that he wanted to squash the, the threat and to keep your people from being fruitful and multiplying. In the midst of that, Lord, um, you still conquered, you still were victorious, you, through the means of a little baby, along a crazy, powerful river that should have been his death, you saved a multitude. 
And Lord, you did that through Jesus. So as we in worship um, think upon your word, as we think about our own hearts and our own proclivities, God, convict us with your spirit. Give us hope as we're drawn towards your deliverance. And God, just give us joy at what you've secured for us in Jesus. Amen. So my name is Darren. I'm one of the elders here. Um, this week, we're in week two of the Exodus series that we're doing. Um, it will probably be a long book. I know, I think Dan mentioned last week, um, as we spend months or years in this book, I don't know if it'll be years. Um, it could just be decades. We're not sure. <laughs> we're trying to narrow 40 chapters down, which is a lot. Um, but Dan began our series last Sunday showing how God's heart was to bring shalom um, shalom is this Hebrew word that means this deep peace, this deep rightness and order, and how God, from the very beginning of making mankind, humanity was meant to be an extension of God's shalom to the world, of being peacemakers and peace bringers to a world that has been um, overgrown with chaos, that there had been weeds that sprouted up in this good garden place that God gave to his people. Um, Exodus begins with a world that's been broken by this shalom. This has been hundreds and thousands of years from the beginning of humanity. And what we have seen is that the setting is now bleak. Um, as, as we hear that text being read, it's not just a story about courageous women that deliver a baby from death. Um, it's not just a story that intros Moses taking people out of slavery, but it is very much a real-life situation of slavery and racism. And as much as we'd like to distance ourselves from settings like that, one of my goals this morning is to try to bring that story to now and so we can recognize the same kind of gravity and that the same heart that led Pharaoh to make these oppressive decrees can often be our hearts as well. So with that, um, I want to deal with what I think the first... Um, maybe response might be in your guys' minds of it's, it's, not, it's not about racism. Let's not go there. Let's not get political. This is just, just about slavery and it was more about the Israelites' faith. Well, Stephen, later in the New Testament, Acts 7.19, summarizes the story this way. Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. So, Darren, it's about power and comfort and control I would respond, yes, it's about racism. The women who delivered and adopted the babies did that in spite of the racism that had seeped into the Egyptian culture. So through this text, I'm going to take us step by step, and we're going to start by looking again at verses uh, 15 and 16. So if you guys want to open your Bibles and follow along, I'm just going to go verse by verse through this section and look at four um, different things that come up. So first off, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, which is a great name to name your daughter, by the way. When you serve as midwife to, to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is the son, you shall kill him, but if it is the daughter, she shall live. So the first question I want to ask, how did it get here? How did a leader get to a place where he was willing to make this kind of horrific genocidal decree against another group of people? And with those questions, I want us to get to deeper questions that go from understanding the text to understanding our hearts. Could I get there? Do I have the seeds of that same kind of oppression in my own heart? And do I tolerate injustice? So the first point, if you guys want to put up the first slide, we're going to look at how dehumanizing leads to death. And the first point is that prejudice grew in Egypt's heart, and it went unchecked. So last Sunday, um, as we were meeting, we had no idea of what was going to be happening in Vegas. We had no idea that there would be a shooting that would be not the biggest killing in America, because we tend to forget about Indians and some killings that have happened in the black community years back, but it is one of the largest modern killings of almost 60 people dead. And the questions we generally ask is, 
the, the questions that try to help us explain something that was just seemingly unexplainable. Was there mental illness? Did he have a violent past? Was there a criminal record? What in the world could lead to one man doing that much carnage and having such a dehumanizing view of the people down below? We know it doesn't appear out of nowhere, but sometimes we like to believe it does. And to bring it home to some of our attitudes and our heart inclinations that are sometimes frighteningly similar for those young parents that see their kids getting to that age of toddlerhood, uh, we call it the three-nagers. If you guys have ever experienced being at the park and having somebody come up and say, your kid bit my kid, what's our response tend to be? Ooh, he, he just had kind of a bad night of sleep last night. <laughs> His heart was good in it. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he just was trying to uh, wake your child up or something. Um, for those that are a little bit older and have kids that are in the teenage years, and you find out, oh man, my son got a girl pregnant. Your first thought, how could she? she seduce my son. We tend to go there. We tend to always look at some other explanation aside from the fact that our hearts could be evil. Bring it closer. What if you committed adultery? Do we call it a lapse in judgment? A lapse, as though we generally have a pure heart, but we just happen to find ourselves in the wrong place, the wrong time, with our clothes off. It's heavy when we start to think of the ways that we dismiss ourselves or those closest to us as exceptions to the rule. We don't want to believe that prejudice, which is the seed of racism, could exist in our hearts. And prejudice literally is to see someone else as other, as something that is different from us, as to see ourselves as separated from them, and to deal with somebody accordingly. We can feed our hearts in that. And I remember six years ago, um, kind of the biggest wake-up call I had in my life was another church leader at my previous church that um, was telling me that I had the heart, the seed of racism in my heart that we all do. And I remember feeling that, that same knee-jerk reaction that many of you guys will feel of like, that's ridiculous. You're being needlessly provocative. You know, we tend to think of, of racism or prejudice as something that is an action rather than an inaction. And what he asked me has stuck with me all these years. He said, I know what street you live on. I've seen who your neighbors are. We did. We had a couple white neighbors. We had a lesbian couple living across the street. Then we had some Asian neighbors on the end. And then we had quite a few black neighbors on both sides. And he said, Darren, prejudice isn't just being uncomfortable with someone else. That's natural. That's okay. Prejudice is letting that discomfort win by you pursuing those who look like you and think like you rather than those who don't. You guys want to turn to Genesis 43. I'm going to read two verses that I think give us this picture of what led up to the Egyptians being complicit in this kind of genocide. Before I read those, verse 22 of what we read, when Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews shall be cast in the Nile, this is what I'm talking about with complicit. The first charge was for the midwives to do all the killing. When Pharaoh found out that wasn't going very well, he commanded all his people. So imagine a whole nation that rose up in accord with that kind of decree. It wasn't just Pharaoh's men. It wasn't just his right-hand men that went out. It was this whole nation surrounding the Israelites. How did it get there? Genesis 43, verse 32. Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Three chapters later, Genesis 46, 34, every shepherd, which is what the Israelites were, is an abomination to the Egyptians. So this is hundreds of years before. This is what predated this genocide, was a looking down on the Hebrews 
and othering of them as a people group, a stereotyping used at that people's expense, which led to literal segregation as they gave them their own land separated from the Egyptian people, out of sight, out of mind. And this kind of stereotype exists and we see it everywhere. We see it in our workplaces as people talk about other people groups, other ethnicities, other classes of people. And we definitely see it clouding all the political talk on social media. It grew, this kind of idea of othering and stereotyping grew by Genesis 1 to outright fear and dread, as Dan talked about last week. So what happened wasn't just that Pharaoh had a nasty heart and he was this villain that controlled an otherwise good people group. What happened, like verse 22 said, is that this prejudice grew into outright hatred. And let that sink in. It doesn't come from nowhere. That's an easy explanation because it gets, it gets us out of having to look at our own hearts and see how could we have some of that same mentality towards another people group. As Israel grew, the second point in their land, sorry, the first slide, but the second point on there, as Israel grew in their land, they were unloved. Um, so they were feared. And we know from the New Testament that perfect love casts out fear. But we'd like to think that God is on our side. Um, we like to think of America often as an Israel of sorts. But this morning, I'd like to ask ourselves the hard question of, are we more like Israel here, or are we more like Egypt? Do we love the other proactively? Or do we think as long as we're not outwardly hating them, then we're okay? Guys, when we're faced with a monster like Pharaoh, <laughs> the scary thing is that it exposes something that's eerily similar to a monster within. The same things that Pharaoh was desiring and going after was prosperity, it was comfort, it was security, and it was a fear of losing power. Eventually, that prosperity, <laughs> that comfort was wrecked by the plagues that God brought. Eventually, that security was lost as Pharaoh's own household felt the plague's weight when he lost his firstborn child with the last plague. He believed that he had favor with the Egyptian gods and he felt that his position and his place would remove him from any of God's justice. We often have a wrong focus in our lives as trying to avoid doing the wrong things rather than having a heart that is proactively looking towards loving the marginalized. And I think that in our church, um, we probably all agree that we've had a lot going on. Jim mentioned three years of a building project. That can very easily distract our attention towards the building project. Um, many of us have come from Mars Hill in that implosion, and a lot of the harm that happened from that, there's been a lot of healing through these years. And th these are good things. I'm not, I'm not saying anything detrimental to them, but it can easily distract us from the charge of loving the marginalized. And then recently, we are sending the Braggas out to church plant. Right now, this morning, he's in Southern California preaching at Park Hill, the new church plant we're a part of. And that can easily distract us as we fear the loss of someone we love, we fear the loss of a leader with amazing giftings, and we fear for what the future of Taproot's going to be. And that can easily distract us from the charge that God's given all of us to love our neighbor indiscriminately, not the one that looks the most like us. I want to ask the question, just for us to, to sit with for a second, why are blacks, by and large, leaving Reformed churches in droves? Do you guys even know that that's happening? Do you know there's been very few in that ethnic group that have even joined Reformed churches? I think the answer is that we easily get so focused on theology being right, or that's reformed or something else, rather than love becoming deformed, love not acting the way God has desired it to act. Um, 
The next slide, fearing God leads to faith and action. I want us to try to get our hearts and our minds, our emotions connected with what was happening in this scene as we read in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I hear a little baby over there. Um, I mean, looking around the room at the new moms, a lot of them, all the babies in the nursery, but just close your eyes for a second and just imagine not only just authorities coming in the room, but neighbors, people that we thought we knew and trusted coming in the room with a desire to literally take the young children from their parents' arms by force and think, who do you turn to in that? You can't turn to the authorities. All the civilians have been deputized. There's no way to turn. What would you do? Do you feel the ugliness of that? You can't call for help. You guys can open your eyes. I think one of the most disgusting things that I've seen in our culture for quite a while is this thing called the bystander effect. I think we all feel that disgust when we see a YouTube video of something happening to somebody and you all of a sudden realize someone was holding the phone and doing nothing. I remember uh, years ago, my wife and I lived in Ballard and we had a, I don't know if someone called the, pulled the fire alarm or if there was an actual fire or something, but there was an evacuation of our condo building we went downstairs and towards the back, um, kind of in this alley uh, way outside, and we're waiting there. And there's this section where this old Denny's used to be, where a lot of uh, homeless people and transients would just hang out there. And there's at least one or two guys in particular that were generally known to be pretty violent and antagonistic. And I remember everyone was sitting out there, and, and just like most apartment buildings or condo buildings in Seattle, everyone lived next to each other, but no one actually knew each other. <laughs> so everyone's sitting there quietly to themselves as though they're on the bus. And we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, this, this one guy that had, kind of had a reputation of being pretty violent in the area came up, and he just signaled out uh, these, these two or three girls. I don't remember exactly who they were, but I remember they were sitting there, and you can tell the look on their faces. They were fearful, because he's not the guy that's just saying stuff at him. He's the guy that has been known to actually do physical harm. And I remember just looking around and recognizing that most of the guys, these 20-some hipsters that were pretty much the same as me, are just kind of like pretending they didn't see it and moving along. And I'd like to say I jumped up right away and, <laughs> and did something, but even I had that bit of like, what, is, what if the girls say, I don't want help? <laughs> what, if, what, if, uh, what if the guy really does lash out and then, hey, I provoked that because I got in the way? Uh, eventually did help with another guy and grab him by the arm and move him out of the area. But um, that kind of mentality, what would we do if someone did come in the door? Uh, we don't usually get an opportunity to, to find out in this culture. We may. But I want to say, if, if we're not willing, if we don't have the heart to be with and stand for the marginalized now, we will not be ready to become the marginalized later. And I do believe that our culture is in a place that, that very well and most likely will be the case within our lifetimes. Maybe not to this kind of extreme, but at least to the detriment of our reputation, at least to the detriment of our livelihood, standing up, speaking, and acting for what's right. Exodus 1 and 2 is always preceded by an Exodus 46. Without repentance and humility, we will not be the first to speak up. We will be the silent majority. Um, my wife, if you guys know her, is a doula. And I know a lot of people don't know what a doula is. It sounds like a 
a weird, you know, crazy witchcraft kind of thing, but it's like, it's, they assist midwives, which also probably sounds like crazy witchcraft to some of us. <laughs> That's where you do weird spells over the baby to make them come out. Um, but we, we, uh, we had all four of our children at home. Uh, with our first boy, Jerome, we weren't actually planning to have a home birth, but my wife was vigorous, not like the Egyptians. <laughs> and... <laughs> And it actually happened with a couple of our kids, so, so we ended up having Jerome at home and not the birth center. Uh, the midwife barely got there in time, if I remember. She was already pushing and no one was there, which was, I was doing, you know, the stupid kind of things, like, can you not push? Like, <laughs> can, we try, can we try that option? Like, it's not how God designed the body to work. Um, but after, after having that birth and recognizing the experience of having a doula there that was so helpful and was praying for us and was, like, helping me, I mean, I... I was not prepared to, <laughs> to birth a child. <laughs> um, I actually, at one point, the, mid- the midwife had to say, hey, Darren, you might need to take a break and go outside. You're getting exhausted from pushing. I'm like, I am. I've been <laughs> sympathy pushing. I'm so exhausted. But she enjoyed the, the experience of having to do this so much that she ended up wanting to become one, to be a part of that joyous place of bringing new life into the world. And, and, and I don't know the circumstances that led these women to become midwives in that day, but I can imagine that the best part of the job was seeing the joy of a baby born. Now imagine without ultrasound technology and not knowing whether it would be a boy or a girl in that time, the job would change drastically. There would be a lot of dread in that. Um, when, uh, when, our third, when our third kid, Theo, came, uh, the midwife didn't arrive in time. <laughs> so the doula and I... I mostly the doula, had to help our baby Theo come out. Um, But as the text says, the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh. So not only were they in a place where it was extremely difficult to even do their job, whether or not they were obeying the edict from Pharaoh, um, they were in a place where Pharaoh asked them and said, what's going on? Why are these baby boys not being killed? And we might be drawn to this kind of weird thing of like, well, did they lie? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I've looked at this. Like, I don't think you necessarily have to believe that they lied, but I also think they probably did. I think that they probably chose to emphasize the vigor of the Hebrew women rather than tell the whole story of, we're not willing to, to obey your edict. But I don't think that the aspect of God's blessing and God granting them fruitfulness and, and children and families was connected just to the way they responded to Pharaoh. I think overall it was connected to the fact that they had courage to not just speak against an injustice that was happening, but to act in defiance of that injustice. And overall, that was the fear of the Lord that was praised. They feared God more than Pharaoh. Um, their heart was full of obedience and compassion and they stood up against the oppression of the most vulnerable. And they did it wisely. If they'd answered straight and said, yeah, we're just letting them live, what's the biggie? Um, they would have possibly been killed, but they would have definitely, definitely not been allowed to attend more of these births. And in that case, more and more Hebrew boys would have been killed. So I think they both acted and spoke wisely, knowing that that type of abortion was wrong. Um, so... When you hear me say abortion, and you look at that section there, and you say, that wasn't abortion, that was infanticide. They were already born. Um, As difficult as it is, if you hear me say abortion, hear infanticide. If you hear me say infanticide, hear abortion. I believe that abortion is just infanticide plus technology. It's a way to have it quiet and invisible. And I get why we all wince right now. We're wincing with the racism talk. We're wincing with the abortion talk. And being in Seattle, I get that. I remember uh, years ago, I ended up ordering a bumper sticker from a website that had this, what I thought was a witty, you know, as I was, you know, strong truth proclaimer bumper sticker that said, would it bother us more if they used guns? And I had a link to the website. And I will say, I've never actually feared for my safety driving but I had a few people cut me off within a couple days and looking like they were pretty pissed, and probably understandably so, because there's no context of love and action within that. It was just a proclamation of a cold, hard truth. 
But a gun with a silencer is still a gun. And I want us to hear and not shut off as I'm talking about this subject because I know that we've probably all, one in, th one in three women have had an abortion. I think all of us know someone that has. It's painful and it sits close to home for all of us. I know that there's likely shame. It's, there's studies that have shown a correlation that is undisputed between people that have gone through having an abortion and deep depression. And it's there, we just don't like to look at those things and think about them. Um, and it may sound like I'm taking these political talking points from the right here, or political talking points from the left earlier, but I'm, I'm not. This is about what the Bible teaches. It's not political. And I want to address both of these things clearly and say that racism is a heart problem and if we address the symptoms, addressing the symptoms by voting, that's all we will do, is address the symptoms. And it will do so poorly. Abortion, likewise, is a heart problem. And if we only address the symptoms through voting or Facebook posting, we're going to do it poorly. And that's all we'll do. The answer lies with us, who are often the silent majority and recognizing that both abortion and racism are tied. Even though they seem to be kind of the big issues for two sides of the political party, they are tied at the center by a shared dehumanizing of God's good humanity that's been meant to be marked by shalom. They're tied together by a devaluing of what the Bible calls the imago Dei, that we're created in God's image with value and dignity and worth. Most of you are familiar with the name Margaret Sanger. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, she was also a eugenicist. She was invited to speak at KKK rallies, and she took up those offers. In the New York Times, on April 8, 1923, she's quoted as saying this, birth control is not contraception indiscriminately and thoughtlessly practiced. It means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation, which is an abortion type of word, of defective stalks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. I want to caution us as the church to, to not rely on words, but to recognize that words without actions is all too typical in the American church. If we feel our heartstrings tugged for the unborn, and that's not shown in our lives, our words may be doing more harm than good. Faith without works is dead, James later says. In the same way, if we like the idea of racial reconciliation, and we're okay if it just happens, but we aren't willing to get in the weeds and actually fight to see that reality, it's empty. Clinging gong without love. When we look at Moses' mother and sister, they had the same heart of compassion with also action, and they feared God. And trying to close some of this cultural gap of what was happening there. Um, there are babies outside of this biblical account that we've heard of being sent along the rivers, whether it was Euphrates River or the Nile. And, and back in that day, um, most of the biggest cities started on rivers because that was the most fertile ground for agricultural. Um, it was the best way to travel rather than going through the sand um, is going up and down these rivers. And so when there was an invading army, it was actually somewhat common that if they knew this army was going to wipe out men, women, and children, they would send their most vulnerable, the children, on these baskets up the river in hopes that someone in the next city would have compassion and mercy and take in their young ones. This is what was happening in this case, but it's, not, it's unique in the sense that there's not another city after Egypt. If you know the geography, the Nile River empties northward into the Mediterranean Sea. The only people that would be coming across Moses' mother's son would be Egyptians. 
They were all commissioned to kill that child. And so the amount of faith to send the child up the river, and this is not just a little stream that you might have going through your backyard. My wife and I were in Uganda uh, just a handful of weeks ago, and we're on the Nile River. And this river is a beast. I don't remember the, the numbers, but the sure amount of tonnage that goes through that river per second is outstanding. This is something where um, the baby could have died from exposure, like the, the preacher Stephen talked about. The baby could have easily died just from the waters themselves and getting overturned. Or, in this case, could have easily been picked up by the Egyptians and killed. The only city that Moses would float through is Egypt. And so Moses' mother was not hoping in mercy or a miracle from the Egyptians, but on her God showing a miracle. Um, the next slide I want to look at, compassion leads to providence. And I read the story of Pharaoh's daughter and her heart of action. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, oh, I'm in the wrong spot. Nope, right spot. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the, child, so the girl went and called the, mother's, the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Isn't it crazy that the very daughter of the madman that ordered the genocide of this whole people group, I don't know if she was a God-fearer, it doesn't say that. She was not a Hebrew, and she had the kind of compassion and courage that led to a kind of action that would have been not only disobeying her father slash king's orders, but doing it defiantly, raising this child in her own home. That kind of boldness, that kind of at cost to yourself, at risk to yourselves, obedience and compassion, that without compassion, without adoption, Moses just would have been a dead baby floating through the Mediterranean. I mean, this is where the book would have ended. We would have had two chapters of Exodus and the rest of the Bible, not even written. This is the faith of a young daughter of royal blood and a young daughter of Moses' mother that had great faith and great compassion. Are we more anti-abortion or are we more pro-life? It's one thing to speak from a distance against something, and it's another much more powerful thing to be moved enough in compassion to, self to sacrifice our own self-interests for those that are vulnerable. This is the Gentile girl and Moses' older sister. And it's a powerful thing to see what God can do through people that are gripped by a heart of compassion. Do you guys know that if 6% of Christian families, these are not just professing Christians, but Christians that are going to church two to three times a week that are in their Bibles regularly that profess um, evangelical doctrine. If 6% of Christian families adopted, there would be no orphans globally. 6%. That's encouraging because it's so achievable and it's kind of discouraging because there are 40 to 120 unadopted orphans based on how you do the math and what you count as an orphan. Did you know that if one in three churches, out of every three churches, if only one family from those three churches adopted or helped raise a child through foster care, there would be no orphans in the U.S. Again, super hopeful, because we have, a, we have enough adoptive families or pre-adoptive families in this church 
to count for quite a few churches in the Burien area, but that shows that there are many, many churches in the U.S. that have very strong feelings on faith, Facebook and very, very weak faith when it comes to real life. And adoption isn't the only way to help. Many adoptive families can't do it because of the financial, you know, twenty to 30,000 cost average of adoption. Many families are overwhelmed by the weight of some of the children from foster care are, are hard to raise and the weight of doing that on their own. And there's ways that you can sign up and get qualified, certified to be respite care families that just help that family for having a date night once a week. What a picture that we can give of the gospel if we let the fear of the Lord compel us to action like that. So as bleak as the story might seem, um, Pharaoh's desire to thwart God's plan and the people's fruitfulness will fail. We know the end of this story. Um, God's justice will, will prevail. Ador- adoption wins out over abortion. And as we talked about in the leading up to this series, this book may well have been called the Book of Names. Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the five books in this one book called the Pentateuch all get their name from the beginning sentence of the book. Exodus is the only exception, but if we took the first sentence of the book, this book would be called the Book of Names, and it's very significant that the Book of Names, where we see Moses named right here, there's already a message being spoken in this text if we look at who is named and who isn't. And all of this is leading towards Yahweh revealing his name a few chapters later. So look closely how this section starts. The king of Egypt. Pharaoh isn't even named. Historians and researchers hate this fact because it makes it hard to actually pinpoint when in time this happened. And a lot of people would say it didn't happen because we don't have Pharaoh's name and we don't know. But Pharaoh isn't named. For such an important event, you think he would be. But Pharaoh is nothing to Yahweh And who gets named? The midwives. The women. And in in this culture, this is backwards to that culture. This is backwards to us even. That God elevates, he names, and he saves through what the culture would say are the nobodies. The insignificant. The overlooked. And Christianity is backwards. The way that the church started, the way Jesus entered this world, is through Mary. A teenage girl who was accused of just being a whore because... Really? You weren't impregnated, yet you have this? You weren't married yet. You had a baby. I can put the dots together, right? This is the way the church started, is the women announced the resurrection of Jesus. Their witness wasn't even credible in the courts at that time. In like fashion, the Israelites, in the grand scheme of things, as a nation, weren't significant. And yet God chose to save the world starting through them. And the women here were even more so. Not only were they women in that culture, but they were unmarried and they had no children. Twice the disgrace in that culture. Which is sad that was even that way, but that was the markers for feminine value in that day. And yet their employment being this constant reminder of their worthlessness to the culture of the Egyptians, through that, Yahweh brought deliverance, and Yahweh brought salvation. God brought them to the forefront of his salvation of Israel. Through God, they had everything, even though culturally, they seemed to have nothing. And it's because they feared God more than Pharaoh. So lastly, I want to point us towards Jesus, looking at Moses um, and how deliverance leads to Jesus. So if you can put that last slide on. Um, three aspects of God's deliverance, and I'm going to go through these quickly since we're running out of time, is first, Moses hearkens back to Noah. Now, it's not that I didn't know until I was studying for this sermon, but the same word for basket, the Hebrew word for basket used here, is actually the word ark that's used in Genesis 9 when it talks about Noah building the large boat. And it's used there, like Dan said last week, by these literary ninjas that wrote the Bible to bring us back to show just like Noah was saved and delivered from the destruction of God's wrath on the world through this ark. Moses, through this mini ark, would be delivered and be a picture of the deliverance of Israel from the wrath of God. Um, it also signified a new start. As Moses, or as Noah, got off the boat and was given this new start to start a new people and a new land, Moses also was the forefront runner for that. Secondly, Moses points forward to Israel. 
Um, later on in the book, um, as we get another 10 chapters in, we'll see that Israel is ultimately delivered from Exodus, from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. Um, Moses going ahead of Israel in this kind of picture within a picture here of deliverance as he crosses the Red Sea. And in the Hebrew culture, when they hear sea, when they hear the waters, they didn't have such a, a nice picture of the waters then. It was generally an idea of chaos. The waters were untamed, uncontrolled. And even in the beginning of Genesis, we see that God brought land by dividing the waters and bringing order into chaos. And the same thing happens through bringing order through the chaos of the waters of Noah. And then here, Moses is delivered through the waters that would have and should have been his death into deliverance. And then lastly, Moses ultimately points to Jesus in the same way that Moses, through God's deliverance, escaped the wrath and the destruction that Pharaoh intended, Jesus also, as a newborn baby, came under the same kind of edict to kill all the firstborns, or all the sons, because Caesar sensed the same kind of threat, the same kind of political threat, and Moses, who fled down to Egypt, and then fled back up from Egypt like Moses in this exodus, was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. As Moses went first, so did Jesus, and he brought us through the proverbial Red Sea into the same kind of deliverance and salvation. So as we move into communion, as we close, prepare ourselves to meet with God through these elements that symbolize his bread broken for us and his blood shed for us, I want us to ask these questions, um, these heart questions of ourselves. When we saw in Pharaoh's daughter this kind of compassion that paved the way for God's providence, let's ask ourselves, if our life is not marked by providing for those in need, whether it's something long-term like, like adoption or not, are we truly living in faith? Do we truly have compassion? If the fear of the Lord, the reverence of who he is and his judgment his mercy does not lead to us having faith resulting in action, do we truly have life-giving faith? Or are we just living in a dead doctrine in the mind? Is God calling us to step out in faith by rejecting a lie that he doesn't use nobodies, small, the individual, the insignificant, and actually be a means of bringing salvation to the people of the earth and abroad. As we prepare our hearts for communion, if there's a sense of dread and weight at the brokenness of humanity, because humanity goes through these same kind of cycles, Egypt wasn't the first society that had an intent towards death and destruction and dehumanizing this all over. We have this looming over our heads. What will happen with North Korea? We have this through our lifetime, seeing what, what the injustices have been done in our own nation. We see this in our own lives as we've, many of us have experienced injustice against ourselves, experienced being shamed. If you're asking this question, when will this end? How did it get here? I want to encourage each of us in, a, in a preparing our hearts for communion to look to the one deliverer who actually has shalom, that actually has a way out of this chaos, that actually has a light for this darkness. So band, if you guys wanna come up, I'm gonna close us in prayer and then we're gonna do a couple songs, which I will invite you guys to get your communion elements during those songs and we'll partake together after. Father, you are so Salvation doesn't come in an empty void. It comes amidst a darkness, a brokenness, a corruption, systems of oppression, desensitized masses that would allow such injustice to happen over and over again. The amount of things, the amount of deeds that are done in the darkness, even today, causes our hearts to
send us as ambassadors of your truth and vastness, of your love to a broken world, to a world that has been marked and marred by you in that world. God, allow your word to do a work, not of judgment and condemnation, but of conviction and dispassion. Lord, we want to be a church that is not just marked by exciting music or well-done sermons or enjoyable communion. We want to be a church that's marked by a love that we wouldn't have to learn about the amount of abortion or the amount of children in the foster care system through statistics or through a website, but we would know through personal relationship dividing walls between people groups. To be broken down by a people that are self-sacrificing their lives, that are not using busyness as an excuse, but are moved towards relationship with those that you see as other, with those that you see as hard to love, with those that we have a hard time understanding what it's like to give us hope because you don't want to just root out the sinful inclinations of our heart you want to replace them with compassion with hope with joy with a destiny you have Lord we thank you for what you've done we thank you for leading us to a place where we've been delivered those that believe and trust in your name have been delivered from the tyranny from the pharaoh Satan, from the weight of sin and slavery to it, we've been delivered to new life. Let us be beacons of that hope. Let us bring the value of the Imago Dei into a world that is dehumanizing one another left and right. Let it be all for your name. Amen. Can you all stand?